0: Help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. That was a vow that changed the world. That was a vow, an oath, that changed the world. Some of you may know it. Is, just, just out of curiosity, does anybody know who, who, was who said that vow? Eva. Martin Luther, very good. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic man studying to become a lawyer Or as they say in the south, a lawyer. And on his way through home one night, in the middle of a lightning storm, a rainstorm, he felt his life was in peril. Some accounts suggest he was even actually struck by lightning. I don't know if that's true or not. But certainly, the lightning storm was so severe, he did not think he was going to make it out. And so it was at that time, like any good Roman Catholic, he he prayed to one of his patron saints, and he pledged this vow. That if you save my life, I will quit being a lawyer and I will become a religious man vocationally. I will become a monk. And as God worked in his providence, Luther was saved from that dreadful night. And so obviously after that, there was a temptation then to not honor that vow. After all, we all tend to do things impulsively when we're afraid, when we're scared. And on top of that, Back then, being a religious monk was not a very prosperous life. Being a lawyer like it is today was a very prosperous life. So he was giving up a lifetime of wealth. And I would also remind you that they did not have social security then. And so his parents were very much dependent upon him to be wealthy because he was their social security net. For Christians everywhere in America today, we forget how vital it was for so many Christians living in different countries than us and in different times than us that children took care of their parents. And so his parents pressured him to become a lawyer. They put a high amount of pressure, yet Luther maintained his vow. And that great and brilliant mind which was set to become most likely a very wealthy, successful lawyer, that mind was now dedicated to theology. And it was that great mind that the Lord used in great ways to bring incredible reformation to the Christian church. That was a vow that literally changed the world. Today, we're going to see something slightly different. We're going to see another rash vow. A vow made impulsively. And this is a vow that almost changed the world. But not for the better. We're going to see a vow that almost changed the world, but not for the better. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14? We continue in our sermon series, 1 Samuel chapter 14. We will read a long portion, but it's important for us to capture this entire story, beginning in verse 24. If you would follow along, for these are the very words of God. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. And his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, "'Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, "'Cursed be the man who eats food this day.'" And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, "'My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey?' How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Meekmash to Agelon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood." And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here all the leaders of the people and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For the Lord who lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Saul is continuing his downhill trajectory as king of Israel. We saw last week... God brought an incredible salvation to Israel. And he did it primarily through Jonathan, not through Saul. It was Jonathan who worked great salvation in Israel by the power of God. And so the Philistines have been defeated. And like any good uh, war commander, I don't know what the technical title was for them back then, he is now engaged in the art of pursuit. I've never served in the military, but I've actually read a book that talks about the principles of war, some key principles to successful warfare strategies. And one of the key principles is is pursuit. There's a temptation when you have defeated your enemy and they are in retreat to claim victory. But what happens when your enemy retreats? They regather, they regroup. So a true successful victory does not come until you pursue the retreating enemy and you find ways to cut them off and utterly destroy them. So Israel has won the day, they've won the war, the Philistines are fleeing and Saul and his army are now in pursuit. And Saul is so jealous for glory. He is so jealous for victory that he lays this rash, counterintuitive And I will show today sinful oath on the people of Israel. You see, he knows they've been fighting all morning and all afternoon long. Now, by the grace of God, I have never been engaged in half-day, hand-to-hand combat. I have, by the grace of God, never had to take a sword in my hand or an axe in my hand and slaughter and cut and kill another man and do so continuously all day long. But I can assume that to engage in that kind of warfare in the Middle East is probably a little taxing. I'll never forget the only thing that even comes slightly close to the kind of exhaustion these men were probably feeling is how I felt oftentimes after summer workouts playing football. We'd show up right, right bright and early in the morning. And we'd be sprinting and running and puking our guts out all the morning long and all the afternoon long. And as the second our morning summer workout ended, there was one thing and one thing only on my mind. Food. I need to eat. I can imagine that after this successful victory, that is what all of Israel is thinking. And Saul knows that this is going to hinder us. This is going to slow us down. So he lays this vow, he lays this oath, Cursed. That is the anathema of God. May God curse, which was the the death penalty. The death penalty shall be placed on any man who eats before evening. So now, his troops, who have been fighting for him all day long, are pursuing their enemy through rugged terrain, sprinting, running, hiking through the hills and through the forest, chasing human beings down, killing human beings, and they're doing it all without food. This oath was so rash... It was so impulsive that there wasn't even able time to, to execute it well. And by that, I mean, it wasn't, they weren't even able to communicate it to all of Israel in a proper time. Because how do we know that? Obviously, Jonathan didn't get the memo. Jonathan's probably ahead of the troops, leading the way, and he goes in the forest. He's starving, and I can't imagine how good that honey was that he tasted. He's been fighting all day long and he sees some fresh honeycomb in the forest and he's starving and he gets a small taste of that delicious, sweet honey. And then he is told, by the way, you have to die now. We, we weren't supposed to do this. And Jonathan, I love his response, Jonathan knows. Again, we, we continue to see Saul's vanity compared with Jonathan's valor. Jonathan knows how silly that oath is. He, he, he gives us a variety of reasons. He, he tells them first that it's counterintuitive. He tells them this is actually, there's an end goal to this oath, and it's actually, the oath is working against that end goal. Saul wants us to have a decisive victory over our enemies. The worst way to accomplish that is to take away our sustenance from us. He said, notice how I have way more energy than you. The, the Hebrew expression translated in English is, my eyes are bright. You know, that, that, that expression makes sense for us who live in a technological day. If you've got some sort of gadget that's battery powered and has light, what happens when the batteries are dying? That light is dimming and dimming and flickering, and you put new batteries in it, and it's bright as ever. And Jonathan's saying, look, that's me. All of your guys' lights are dimming and flickering. You're running out of energy. I'm ready to go. So our victory is actually hindered by not eating. If the whole army could eat, we'd actually be more successful. So he sees that it's counterintuitive, rash, and unwise. But I would argue that he even goes as far to say that it's downright sinful. This was a sinful oath to put on the people. The reason I say that is because if you'll notice in Jonathan's words, he specifically says that Saul troubled the land by not allowing the troops to enjoy the spoils or the fruits Of their enemies. That phrase is important in Old Testament context. You see, there was an Old Testament Levitical law, something Saul would have known, and it becomes a famous law in the New Testament. I'll explain why in just a second. But this was a law about how the people of Israel were not allowed to muzzle their ox when it would tread the grain. What what was that a reference to? Well, again, they didn't have combines back then. They didn't have tractors back then. They would yoke ox together and ox would tread the grain. Ox would do the the hard work and labor for them. But what would happen is you've got these huge beasts, these animals yoked together farming for you, and they see food on the ground. And so what do they do? They stop to eat, and that would frustrate farmers because we have a certain amount we have to get done. Like we're running out of daylight here. So they would muzzle the ox so it couldn't eat. And then it would be more, allegedly more efficient in its work. And God saw that this is cruelty. That's cruelty. And so God said, you shall not do it. Do not muzzle the ox. Here's why this becomes so important. Paul references that Levitical law twice in the New Testament. But he makes application outside of agriculture for it. And where he makes that application is when he is defending the payment of pastors. As Paul was preaching the gospel and establishing churches, this was one of the issues. Is it lawful? Is it right for a man of God, a person who's doing the work of the gospel to be paid? Shouldn't the gospel be free? And so Paul has to make a defense of why, no, it's actually proper and appropriate to pay pastors. And he does this in two different places in the Bible, 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, and in both places. His defense was this Levitical law. If if you were to go back in time and ask Paul, why should I pay my pastor? You know what Paul would say? Because you don't muzzle your ox. He even says in, in 1 Corinthians, when God wrote this law, was it really oxen he was concerned with? That's what Paul says. Was it really oxen he was concerned with? No, but there was a principle here. There was a principle in this law that applied elsewhere. And Paul also pairs it with a quotation from Luke that Jesus says, the laborer deserves his wages. So here's how I'm bringing all this together. These soldiers had a divine right to their food. This is slavery. This is theft. I would say that Paul is forgive me that Saul is treating his soldiers like animals, but according to God's law, he's treating them worse than animals. Saul would not muzzle his ox, but he's willing to muzzle his troops. He's willing to muzzle his men. This is sinful. This is selfish. This is cruel. And then to make matters worse, it's counterintuitive. It's a poor strategy. This is a terrible oath. And it was not executed well. And because it was not executed well, Jonathan broke it. And so Saul, after nighttime falls, the oath is broken, right? Because he says until evening. So the evening comes, the curse is over, and so what do the men then do? Well, they take the animals of the lands that they have overcaptured, but they are so famished, they are so starved, they are so quick to eat that they do not properly drain the animals, cer- ceremonially drain the blood from the animals before they eat, which was a Levitical law. So, on top of everything we've said about Saul's rash oath, here's another thing to throw into the pot. He has now caused his brothers to stumble. They are so hungry and so famished and they rush to eat that they don't properly drain the blood. I, I will just, as an important side note, remind you that in the Levitical law, this this commandment to not eat the blood, to drain the blood... We tend to misrepresent this in kind of our casual Christian conversations. And I, I, I'm not trying to criticize. I do it too. I make this joke all the time. But I hear this a lot. Like when Christians are talking about the, the, the fulfillment of the ceremonial Old Testament laws and how they've been fulfilled in Christ and they're not binding on us. Specifically, the food laws are not binding on us today. Uh, the book of Acts makes that crystal clear. Jesus in the Gospels makes that very clear. And so we say things like, yeah, there was ceremonial laws in the Old Testament for food, but those have been fulfilled, so go ahead and eat your pork, eat your bacon, and eat your medium rare steaks. Right? Like, what are are we saying there? Obviously, they weren't allowed to eat pig, so they didn't have bacon, they didn't have pork, we can eat pig today. And they weren't allowed to eat the blood, so we can eat medium rare steaks. My wife uh, loves food, and she loves cooking, and so I can admit to you that I actually only found out about a year ago that... When you cut into a rare or a medium rare steak and that red liquid comes out, that's not blood. So uh, a medium rare steak is not a steak with blood in it. So the the Levitical law was not about having to overcook all your meat. Uh, But it was the ceremonial cleansing and draining of the blood from the animal. And the people were so hungry, they they just, we we don't have time to do this. Just cut it open, get it on the grill, and let's feast. So the people are sinning. So Saul is laid a stumbling block at his brother's feet now he tries to amend it Right? they build an altar, they they drain the blood and they're doing everything proper and so now that they're eating, now that the, the oath is over Saul is strategizing more he says let's go down by night and let's finish the job and his priest tells him well let's consult the Lord but then the Lord gives him no answer so Saul knows the reason the Lord refuses to answer me is someone broke this oath so he gathers Israel and says who's done it? And of course, how many of you would have volunteered yourself? So he says, okay, it's time to cast lots. And God controls the lots, so God uses the lots to reveal the truth. It is Jonathan who broke the oath. And Saul, I guess you could maybe say to his credit, I don't know, he's going to be faithful to his oath, and he is now going to kill his son. But I said this was not the vow that changed the world. This was the vow that almost changed the world. Because the people of Israel... Gather together against their king. And they know this oath was rash and silly, and we will not allow Jonathan to die. This man who just saved us, we will not allow him to die. And so they give their own oath, as the Lord lives, not a hair from Jonathan's head. So now we have this dueling oaths. <laughs> it's a total mess. And by God's grace, Jonathan is delivered, Jonathan is saved. It's hard to imagine the repercussions for Israel had Jonathan been put to death. You'll start to maybe try your hardest to calculate that as we move forward, but we obviously don't know. I'm not the Lord. I don't know counterfactual principles, meaning what would happen if so-and-so did this. We don't have an exhaustive knowledge of those things the way God does. But I can't imagine that it would have been good for Israel for Jonathan to die. This is the oath that almost changed the world. This was Saul's vainglory nearly destroying, potentially destroying, the future of Israel. How would I summarize all of these many mistakes that Saul made? You want to know how I would summarize them? I would say this simply Saul broke the third commandment. Saul broke one of the Ten Commandments, specifically, not to take the Lord's name in vain. If you want to know what principle, what do I learn from this bizarre text of Saul's... Did I get it wrong? Is that the second? Sorry. Did I say... What what was it, Eva? Correct me, Eva. Did I get it wrong? That's the third commandment, right? I said off the head. Oh, okay. Maybe I wasn't wrong. The first table of the law. (laughs) No other gods, no graven images. The Sabbath is the fourth. And then one of them, one of the... is do not take the Lord's name in vain. So if you're thinking... What's the principle like I derive from this sermon? What do I learn from this bizarre, rash oath? It's simply this. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. It's always struck me as a very kind of peculiar thing. Our church has two confessions of faith that we sort of generally follow. And these confessions, these historic confessions are... Masterpieces. I mean, even people who don't hold to the confessions or don't appreciate or, you know, who don't follow the theology of the confessions still are usually re- recognized that these are some of the most important historical doctrines in the Protestant movement. The Lutherans have their confessional standards and even non-Lutherans recognize like these are works of art. They're just, these Lutheran confessions are just geniuses and the Reformed confessions the same way. Even if someone disagrees, they're, they're just amazing. And the two that we hold to there's the London Baptist, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith. And there's a lot of overlap between these two. And you'll notice that the purpose of these are not to be exhaustive in every point of doctrine, to try to teach you every single thing you could possibly know about the Bible. It's just to cover the most important reformational principles. So we have these really important doctrines like our doctrine of Scripture, the Trinity, who is Jesus, who is the Holy Spirit, end times, what is the church, justification, how are we saved, right? These basic pillars of the Christian faith they've sought to lay out. But you know what's interesting? Both confessions have a chapter dedicated to religious oaths and religious vows. And growing up for me, that was always just so weird. Like it just didn't seem to fit. Like Trinity, Incarnation, Holy Spirit, Justification, Salvation, End Times, Eschatology, and how to make a proper religious oath and a proper religious vow. Like, is this really a, a crucial building block of the Christian faith? Now, I will tell you, I'm still learning much of the history of this. So even historically, I don't know why this was so important to put into the Confessions. I really, I can't tell you a full answer to that, but I can give uh, some reason part of the reason is these documents are still old enough that very much the mindset of these documents was we are coming out of Rome. We are coming out of Roman Catholicism and so so much of these documents was sort of a polemical work against Roman Catholic theology. And the Roman Catholic Church is filled, at least it was then, I'm not sure what it's like today, but back in the 16th century and, and onward was filled with religious oaths and religious vows. People were swearing on God things all of the time. The most popular ones is Roman Catholicism has a much higher view. I would argue it's a, it's a distorted view, it's an unbiblical view, but it is a much higher view of singleness and virginity and celibacy. And so it was very common for people at a very early age to take a religious oath to be forever celibate, to be forever a virgin. And so some of it was as people were coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, they were still accustomed to living a life filled with oath-taking and vow-taking. And so these confessions set out to say, okay, here's when a vow is sinful, here's when a vow is not sinful. It just sort of helps us understand and walk through. Uh, But I think the fact of the reality for us today, you read through the Old Testament, vows are all over the place. Oaths are all over the place. You read through Reformation history, vows were all over the place, oaths were all over the place. This is foreign to us because I would argue that in our day and age, in our culture, even in our expression of Christianity, religious oaths and religious vows are just not really a part of our daily life. I don't know when is the last time you made a solemn religious oath the way Saul did here, or the way Martin Luther did on his way home that night making oaths and making vows are just not a huge part of our culture. But they have been a huge part of culture for so long that God set to it to add it into the Ten Commandments. Not to take an oath in God's name in vain. So let's ask this question, what is an oath then? The Westminster Confession describes it this way, an oath is a solemn act of religious worship in which the person swearing calls God to witness his sincerity in what he asserts or promises and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he swears. John Calvin gave a much more simple definition. An oath is calling God to witness what we say is true. I like the Westminster Confession though because it adds the two elements to an oath that are really important. What is an oath? An oath is really one of two things, although they're related. It's when you're claiming to tell the truth... And you are so concerned that people believe you. You are so convinced that you are being truthful that you are willing to call the judgment of God upon you. I swear to God, God as my witness, as long as the Lord lives, these are all expressions of taking an oath. It's when you are saying God is witness to the truthfulness of what I am saying. Uh, Related, an oath can also be a kind of pledge to do something. God is my witness, I will. These are oaths where we call God's name, we call the judgment of God, we bring the holy name of God into our circumstances and we ask God to be a witness either to the truth of what we're saying or to the fact that we will fulfill what we're saying. And this is exactly what is at stake when we are told in Exodus, chapter, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is a commandment against taking an oath in vain. As a matter of fact, if you were to translate the Hebrew a little bit more literally, it would read like this. You shall not lift up the name of God to emptiness. You shall not lift up the name of God to worthlessness. You shall not lift up the name of God to vanity. So anytime we take the holy name of God and we lift it up to a vain, empty, worthless, untruthful thing, we have defiled and offended God in a very serious way. What we have essentially done is we've made God a liar. Right? If I say at three o'clock yesterday, God is my witness, I went to cattle bear now, I did not go to Cattle Baron at 3 o'clock yesterday, so what have I done? I've said God affirms this truth that God does not affirm. I have made him a liar. I have told you that God affirms this lie. Same thing if I vow, I vow God is my witness, tomorrow at 3 o'clock I will go to Cattle Baron, and then I don't. What have I done? I've made God a liar. And clearly, I have shown contempt for the name of God. I'm obviously not afraid of God. I don't reverence Him. I don't fear Him. I don't value Him. Then I'm willing just to throw His name around with my lies and attach Him to the worthless things of my life or attach Him to my lies. It is a very serious thing to treat the name of the Lord, which represents the Lord Himself, to treat the Lord as if He is not altogether holy and unlike us. Now, here's what I want us to just briefly look at. What are some of the ways that we can avoid taking the Lord's name in vain? As I said, what does that look like for us? Well, I, I, the, first, the first two are somewhat obvious. The first one is, here's how you don't take the name of the Lord in vain. If you swear an oath, if you swear a vow in the name of the Lord, fulfill the oath. Fulfill the oath. Unless you've made a sinful oath... You should not fulfill that. You should repent of that, not fulfill it. But if your oath was not sinful, meaning you didn't vow to do something sinful or you didn't ask someone else to do something sinful the way Saul did, if it's not a sinful oath, you fulfill it. Martin Luther made an oath to become a monk. It's not a sin to become a monk. He needed to fulfill that. Fulfill your oaths. Here are some of the ways that we actually, in our daily life, these are, we do actually have some, not a lot, but some oaths that we are accustomed to. The main one is your marriage vows. If marriage vows are done right, God's name is brought into it. In the past, the vows that I have written for people, I have said things like, in the presence of God and these many witnesses. Why do we say that? Why do we bring God into the marriage? Because what we are saying is I am making a vow to this person and God is my witness. I will fulfill these vows. This is why, in the Christian religion, for so many years, we have taken the marriage oath so seriously. Because it is a religious vow, calling upon God's approval, God to witness, God to judge. Another time we make an oath, a common way we make oath, is if you are called to be a witness in a court case. Now, unfortunately, as our society becomes more and more secular, I don't know how many courts still do it the old-fashioned way. But the old-fashioned way, it was a religious vow. You would literally put your hand on a Bible. You would put your hand on the Word of God, and you would swear, God is my witness to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You were bringing God into that courtroom. And you were saying, what I'm about to say is so fully true, may God judge me if it's not. You were saying, what I am about to say, God gives hearty approval to everything I say. That's a sacred oath. That's a sacred vow. So if you get married, honor your marriage covenant. Be faithful to it. I don't care how hard it gets. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. If you are called to be a witness in court, tell the truth. That can be very hard. Sometimes witnesses' lives are threatened. Their families are threatened. Is that an appropriate time to lie? No. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. That's what we call perjury, by the way. Perjury, the definition of perjury is to lie under oath. You have taken a solemn oath, but that oath was a lie. It was untrue. And that's why lying is not a capital offense. If I lie to my wife, I'm not gonna go to prison. But perjury is a different kind of lie. It's a worse kind of lie because I've brought God into it. It's a sacred, solemn oath. Here's another really important one. And I think this one applies to why I think our culture is somewhat of a healthy culture. We take the name of the Lord in vain by making trivial or irreverent, or as we already discussed, sinful oaths. In other words, the oath is so sacred and the vow is so important, we should not just be going around making oaths and vows for every little thing. Right? If my wife asked me, hey, will you go get the laundry for me? It would be inappropriate... For me to stand, God is my witness. I shall retrieve your laundry. Like if I were to do that, she would laugh. She would inherently know this is a joke. You're not being serious. We don't need to bring the name of God into something. By the way, we, we, we don't have time to turn there, but I would encourage you to write down in your Bibles Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37. One of the most misunderstood Bible passages in all of Scripture because Jesus in that passage addresses taking oaths. And he tells us not to take them. And he tells us in that passage specifically, whether by heaven or the things under heaven in the earth, do not take any at all. Many, many people throughout the history of the church have assumed that what Jesus is saying is it's wrong to do a religious oath under any circumstances ever. This was one of the key Anabaptist theologies. And it's blatantly, biblically wrong. How do we know that we cannot interpret Jesus' words there as 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 a blanket, no oaths under any circumstances? Well, we know that for a variety of reasons. Number one, the Apostle Paul takes on many oaths in the New Testament. He not only calls oaths over himself, he takes his own oaths. He gives oaths and vows to other people. My favorite one is in the pastoral epistles. He charges Timothy, in the presence of God and in his son who will return and in the presence of the holy angels, I charge you, preach the word. I as a pastor, I am under a sacred oath to preach the word rightly. That's an oath I have taken on. So we have Paul giving sacred oaths. We also see in the scriptures old and new testament our faith to God. When you believe on Jesus Christ for the repent for the forgiveness of sins, that is referred to as an oath, as a vow, as a pledge. Faith is an oath. So if we can't take any oaths at all, you're not saved. <laughs> lastly, what we're going to look at at the end of this sermon, uh, so you don't have to turn there yet, in Hebrews chapter 6, God himself takes an oath. God himself swears his own oath. So, Jesus is not telling the Jewish people you can't ever take a religious oath under any circumstance. But when we look at what Jesus says in the context of it, what was happening was in the days of Jesus, the Jewish people were constantly taking oaths over every little thing. And so Jesus says, you don't need a sacred oath for everything. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. If Layla asked me to get the laundry, I should just be a man of integrity and say yes. That's it. I don't need an oath for that. And notice Jesus also, not only by telling them not to take all of these very trivial oaths over every little thing, but notice what they were swearing by in Matthew 5. It wasn't God. It was things in heaven and things on earth. You see, people were intentionally being sneaky with their oaths. They would swear by things that aren't God. And doesn't that kind of give you less confidence that it's true? Because if it's false, I haven't really brought the judgment of God upon me. Right? So they would swear oaths by on the temple, because the temple's holy. That's still holy. So I'll swear, I'll swear an oath on the temple. Even Martin Luther, who did a Martin Luther technically swear his oath on? Saint Anne, not God. Jesus tells us never ever do anything like that. If, you're, if what you're swearing an oath to is not important enough that you need to bring God's name into it, it's not worth taking an oath. That's why, so things, for example, so even if, I would say, even if just as an expression, Christians should not say things like this. On my mother's grave, I, I swear, on my mother's grave, I, I, it didn't happen. You don't need to swear anything on your mother's grave. You don't need to swear anything on your children. You don't need to swear anything on your car. You don't need to swear oaths on anything in heaven or on earth. Either swear by God or realize that you don't need to swear at all. We take the name of the Lord in vain when we use his name for trivial oaths. Oaths must be solemn. The last way, and this is the more common way for our culture, that we break taking the Lord's name in vain, the one that is very, very prevalent in our culture is the idea of using the Lord's name as a curse word. We should never, ever use the Lord's name as a curse word. Now, what's funny, in our culture, we tend to think that is the first and primary application of taking the Lord's name in vain. But that's not. That's a a further down the line implication. The commandment was about oaths and vows. Being people of integrity. Honoring our oaths. Honoring what we say we will do in the name of the Lord. But certainly, it is a legitimate application to... If, if we are not supposed to take the name of God and raise it up to worthlessness or drag it through the mud then certainly an extension of that rule an extension of that principle is using God's holy precious name as a curse word people stub their toe Jesus Christ that's very sinful that's very sinful it's very offensive it should be So we as Christians, I would encourage you, you need to work out of your vocabulary because oftentimes these things just become filler, reactionary, we don't consciously think about it. You need to work expressions like, oh my God, out of your vocabulary. You don't need to bring the name of the Lord into your life when you get surprised. You don't, you need to work out of your vocabulary like, oh no, I swear to God. I know, I did do that. I swear to God. Work that out of your vocabulary. That's taking his name in vain. You don't just throw out a swear to God. That's a sacred oath you've just made. Jesus tells us that on the last day, we will be held accountable for every careless word. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? The fact that it's a careless word means we won't even think about it. We don't even remember saying it. Jesus remembers. I wonder how many people are going to have to give an account for all of the times they carelessly swore to God. God says, I found this very sacred and very holy, and you just threw it out like it was nothing. It's like Jesus' principle of casting pearls before swine. Taking the holy name of God. Jesus Christ, oh my God, swear to God, is not an expression suitable for us. Here's one way that even I've been convicted, and I would encourage you to work this in, although you might think this is a little legalistic, but I'm just, I'm personally, I'm a big fan of it's better to be safe than sorry. I would even work expressions out of your vocabulary like holy cow or holy crap. Holiness. Even though it's not God, God is holy. He is the expression, the standard, the epitome of holiness. Do we really want to bring holiness in with livestock? Holiness in with defecation? I would argue that's really not a small thing. Holiness is important to us. The name of the Lord is important to us. So we make rash vows. We defile the name of God when we use these things as curse words. In many of these applications we see in Saul... This rash, trivial vow, it was unnecessary, it was rash, it was not thought through, it was sinful, and he almost wrecked the nation. All of Israel was almost catastrophically wrecked because of his inability, his refusal to know and believe and follow the Ten Commandments. But here's how I want us to conclude. We've learned some really helpful life applications, right? Here's your life application. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. What does that look like? You know, be faithful to your oaths and don't make trivial or sinful oaths and don't curse, use God's name as a curse word. We've learned all these applications, but here's what I want us to see to really bring it home, to really understand the sacredness and the importance of religious vows. I want us to conclude with this. The gospel itself is a religious vow. You are saved. Your salvation, and as John the Baptist says, the salvation of the entire world is accomplished because God takes oaths so seriously. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. The author of Hebrews is addressing the promise to Abraham Which we learn in the New Testament counts his spiritual descendants. He is the father of the faithful. And so we see his many descendants as being the new covenant fulfilled and promised. The salvation of the world. The children of Abraham being saved. And notice what what the author of Hebrews says. God is saying this. Hebrews chapter 6 beginning in verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he didn't swear at all? No. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all of their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, The writer of Hebrews saying here, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that when God swore to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, that he would be the father of many children, God knew if I say this, my word is sure, because I'm God. But he didn't even want a sure word. He wanted to double down. He wanted to make it a double sure word. And so the God with whom it is impossible to lie, not only told Abraham what he would do, but if you read it, he didn't even quote the first part of the oath. God literally says, by myself, I swear on myself in the Old Testament. He gives him a promise and then he confirms it with a holy religious vow, with an oath. So that when we take this hope of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which the text tells us is fulfilled and expressed in Christ Jesus, this hope, this promise of salvation that God has given us, this promise is carried by Christ into the Holy of Holies. We are brought into the presence of God by Jesus and that is the fulfillment of the promise. That Jesus would save you and draw you and bring you near to God is the fulfillment of this promise. And so how do we know God will fulfill it? How do we know God will be faithful to his church? How do we know he will be faithful to his people? Because it is impossible for him to lie and he swore on himself. He put his right hand on his own self and swore The gospel will be fulfilled. That is the vow that truly changed the world. That was the oath that changed the world far more than Saul or Martin Luther could ever hope or dream of changing the world. The whole world was changed by a promise. A gospel promise that the God who cannot lie will fulfill what he has said he would fulfill. So why do we take oaths so seriously? Because God takes them seriously. God is not a breaker of oaths. We would be in big trouble if he was. But our God is a faithful God who makes good oaths, sober-minded vows, and he is faithful to fulfill them. So we have come here really this morning in this text to see the negative example of an oath, and then to turn our minds to the positive example of an oath, the oath that changed the world, the oath that is and will continue to save the world. The Gospel of Promise.